millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay. A little bit nervous about this one. Why? Oh, your okay. little thing you did. Here we go. <laughs> Today we're talking Scarface. Scarface! Brian De Palma's three hour epic. Al Pacino's accent is problematic. Yeah, we're talking Scarface. Used to own it on VHS Double tape edition, it was the best Other double tapes I owned Double tapes Titanic and Dances with Wolves Braveheart Casino and Apocalypse Now Redux But today we're talking about the DVD and the Blu-ray editions that we own. That we own. Pretty sure Justin has a Blu-ray, but I got a DVD collector's case that's made out of alligator skin and comes with a money clip. Today we're talking Scarface. Scarface! On Cinema Possessed. Cinema Possessed. This is Cinema Possessed. The podcast. Cinema Possessed. This is Cinema with Jack and Justin. Cinema Possessed. This is Cinema Possessed. The podcast. Cinema Possessed. 
Welcome, everybody, to the Cinema Possessed Podcast. My name's Jack Bishop. And I'm Justin Nisham. And each week we take a close look at one film in our combined DVD and Blu-ray collections and discuss what it was about it that originally possessed us to want to possess it. We'll debate whether or not the film still holds that power over us today, and in the end we'll decide once and for all if it deserves to keep its place on the shelf or be ground up into a fine powder and snorted up Al Pacino's nose. He, apparently he fucked his nose up with whatever substance they use for I, cocaine in this film. I heard may, maybe rumored milk powder or yeah, something. Yeah, but it, I think it changed him. Changed him forever. <laughs> Justin, what movie are we talking about today? Today we're talking Scarface 1983, directed by Brian De Palma, written by Oliver Stone. 1980, Miami. They called it Little Havana, where the American dream had a price tag. And only one man in a million was hungry enough to pay. So what do you call yourself? Eh? Como se llama? Antonio Montana. And you? What you call yourself? Al Pacino. Scarface. Uh, Justin, what did you watch this movie on? I watched it on Blu-ray. One of the worst Photoshop covers of all time. <laughs> yes. Uh, the the cover is revolting, and I I'm envious of your edition uh, just for this alone. But uh, but it's a Blu-ray. It's a least. Blu-ray. The quality of the uh, transfer was amazing. Mm-hmm. Seven point one surround sound. I I did recently upgrade my sound system. I don't know if you've listened to it yet, but it, I did the Sonos system. Okay. So oh I, that so you can I like, have a center sound bar. Right. I have a subwoofer. I have two rear Sonos speakers, which I did a hack. I went to Ikea, and Ikea has a Sonos-branded bookshelf speaker that's $50 less than the ones you're supposed to use, sure. but you can pair them with your 5.1 setup. Mm-hmm. So save like a couple hundred bucks Hot that tip way. for y'all out Hot there. Hot tip, yeah. Save 200 bucks. Only on Cinema Possessed. Hell yeah. You um, heard it here first. But... So when like, you know, the the refugee camp in the beginning of the movie when yeah. when the camera's like booming down, you hear like the freeway on your right. Mm. You hear like people all around you mm-hmm. and the you know, this the sound creates an immersive experience that I know doesn't exist on like the right. older DVDs where they're still using you stereo. You hear that basketball mm-hmm. bouncing mm-hmm. that Tony Montana does but, basically nothing with <laughs> they cut shoots, shot of him. shoots and misses. <laughs> I mean, it would not have been cool if he if he made a slam. No, it's the perfect <laughs> it's the perfect intro to his character. Well, if the movie was made nowadays, it would have been a whole yeah, basketball sequence. Exactly. There would have been a slow mo. He would have broken the backboard, mm-hmm. and it would have been cool. The Paul Greengrass style, you know, different frame rate, rapid cutting, yeah, shutter speed. Uh, what are the features like on that? They're fine. I com- I actually compared it to the DVD. It's exactly the same as the standard DVD edition. I don't know what yours has, mm-hmm. uh, except it adds one more called uh, The Scarface Phenomenon. This all-new documentary explores how a film plagued with troubles mm-hmm. is now considered a cult classic, influencing a whole new generation of filmmakers and leaving a lasting imprint on pop culture. I bet uh, that. Did you watch that? I did. I'm it sure that great. was pretty informative. I watched the deleted scenes. I couldn't get through them. It was boring. Yeah. Um, World of Tony Montana, the rebirth, the acting, the creating. Yes. 
weird titles for bonus features. Yeah. The creating. That's not a complete. <laughs> the creating of Scarface. The creating. The rebirth of Scarface, the acting of Scarface, the yeah. creating of Scarface. Right. And the legacy? Is there one? There's no legacy. Oh, uh, making of Scarface, the video game, which I didn't, oh. I didn't know there was a video game. I Actually, I have a vague memory of that, mm -hmm. but I had, hadn't thought of it until you just mentioned it right now. The video game that I think of when I think of Scarface Miami is Vice. Vice City. Your Vice, yeah, Vice City. Yeah. Grand Theft Auto Vice City. Jeez. That's the ultimate Scarface game. Um, there's a TV version of Scarface on this, which... Mine has that too. Don't yeah. care. Um, it was kind of fun. And then a, a feature called Scarface Scorecard where you can track the F-bombs and the bullets <laughs> fired <laughs> while you watch the and movie. And the bullets? And the bullets. Jeez. I don't understand. <laughs> it's wow. like maybe if you turn it into a drinking game or something there's a lot of drinking games mm -hmm. you could do with this definitely when he says the f word anytime he says okay okay this, he says it almost after every sentence so you'd be shit-faced uh so i watched this on this beautiful oh god i mean this okay so what i have what i'm holding here in my hands listeners is a briefcase sized box that is made out of a faux alligator skin it says Al Pacino Scarface on the front of it. Uh, the with, Tony Montana the, emblem. The Tony mm. Montana emblem. You open this baby up and oh it's beautiful crimson red pillow that the DVD sits in. This DVD is a two disc anniversary edition. Oh my God. Um, this came out in 2003. So this was like the definitive Scarface you could get in mm -hmm. the year 2003. And then... Uh, beneath the pillow, you take the pillow off. Well, it's like a red silk. Honestly, I'm really impressed with the quality of it. Mm -hmm. It's not like, you know, you start touching it and you're like, okay, it's not the most expensive quality. But for a DVD case, this is nice. I've never seen a movie get this kind of treatment before. This is very nice. So you open that up and it comes with lobby cards. I want to say there's eight lobby cards here. Mm -hmm. And then oh, there's more. You have the original Scarface. Jeez. The Howard Hawk Scarface um, written by Ben Heck. Um, which I did not watch this time, but I did watch when I originally got this yeah. set. So I don't know exactly how the, the movies compare from the original to this remake, but for, for the listeners who don't know, this Scarface 1983 is a remake of, uh, of a Scarface that came out in 1932. And then last but not least, this set comes with a beautiful gold money clip that also has the Tony Montana emblem on it. I've never used this to hold money. I dare you to for one week. <laughs> Honestly, if it, I, I'm not really a money clip guy. One, I don't have cash ever. But two, mm -hmm. I'd rather have my cash in a wallet. I don't really want it in a clip. Yeah, but you got a, you got a ball. Gotta you got to show it off. I'll show off all the cash you have. So this is a beautiful, gorgeous. Let me, let me just like. There's no way you're giving this up. I mean, we can, we can tell the audience <laughs> right here, right now. This is staying in your collection. Well, we'll see. We'll see. So, so wait, you pick this up from back home in Arkansas. Yeah, so this I've had I I got this in two thousand and three, and I've had it at my at my parents' house because it's too when you move we you and I both have very big DVD collections. It's a whole conceit of this podcast, and those things get heavy. They fill up boxes. You can't put that on a shelf. You have to almost like make room around exactly. it. Exactly. And so when I moved from Arkansas to Chicago initially, I did not take this Scarface box with me, but I didn't get rid of it. I kept it there and it just never ended up making it to any of my homes, but I, I would always remember it. I was always, oh, I have Scarface back home in this beautiful collection. And so the last time I was in Arkansas, 
I dug it out and and brought it home, and it's in pristine condition, and the the discs were perfect. Um, so let me just like paint a little picture for you of who what was going on in my life in 2003. I was a movie obsessed 15 year old. Mm-hmm. I was a DVD obsessed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when Christmas time rolled around, that was like the pretty much the only thing I asked for at the age of 15 was just DVDs. And Christmas was the time to get big, expensive shit like this that I wouldn't have normally been able to afford with my allowances and my lawn mowing money. Do you remember the first DVD you ever bought? I do, actually. Well, that I ever bought? Or that you got. Yes, I remember I got I got five DVDs. when I, I got a DVD player, I believe, in 1999. Mm-hmm. I was the first and only person that I knew that had a DVD that player. That was a great year for DVDs. And when I got a DVD player, I honestly didn't even know what a DVD was capable of. I had only seen those commercials, and they looked awesome. Yeah. But like the ideas of special features and stuff did not become clear to me until I actually put in a DVD and started mm-hmm. playing around with it. And those just blew my fucking mind. Yeah. But the, the DVDs that I got uh, initially were um, Raising Arizona, The Edge, um, the Matrix and The Wedding Singer. I believe, oh wait, there's one more. Oh, and Gentleman's Agreement, which is a Gregory mm, Peck movie, black and it. white. Um, those are the five movies that I got with my first DVD player for my birthday in the year of 1999. And you know, Raising Arizona's what, and I had not even seen Raising Arizona at that point. That was my parents just like went to the store. Mm-hmm. We're getting Jack a DVD player, but we gotta get him The Matrix because he loves The Matrix already. But let's get them just some stuff that we like too. And so, like my introduction to stuff like Raising Arizona and Gentleman's Agreement was by my parents just being like, "Hey, here's a DVD, watch it." And I did, and I loved it. And now Raising Arizona is one of my favorite movies. Were of all they time. geeking out about the DVD player and the? I don't DVDs think they understood too? it. I mean, like, yeah. Once I kind of told them, I was like, "Do you know that you can like watch trailers on this thing?" And you know that that Matrix DVD is like the one of the most ultimate DVDs you could have. It was filled with special features and so that blew my fucking mind so in 2003 i got this for christmas um first off can you imagine santa bringing a kid this scarface scarface <laughs> like this suitcase it's illegal i mean isn't the isn't it 17 <laughs> and older <laughs> you know what so that that brings up a great point when i was a kid i'd never believed in santa claus that's sad it it wasn't because i like was too cool for school it's just my parents never really pushed the myth on me and for whatever and maybe because i had an older brother too for whatever reason i just never i always knew my parents were the ones giving me presents on christmas honestly it made it easier i knew who to ask i knew how to get what i needed mm-hmm. knowing that it was my parents you were a real tony montana exactly mm-hmm. yeah but every every single one of my friends believed in santa claus up until like fourth or fifth grade losers and i remember having to navigate that when talking to them because I would slip up sometimes and say my parents and they'd be like, what? And then you'd have to, I, I didn't want to ruin their fantasies. And I remember one of my friends coming over on Christmas day and um, going, Santa bought me Mortal Kombat three for Christmas. And I could not, my parents would not allow me to, to have Mortal Kombat because of its blood. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, Santa didn't fucking bring you that shit because I can't even have it. It's so violent that I'm not even allowed to have it. You think Santa brought you that, you dumb idiot? So that I, what you just said there, if Santa wouldn't bring you Scarface, maybe he wouldn't. Mm-hmm. But he, it was on the top of my Christmas list that year. Honestly, it's crazier to imagine my parents going into Best Buy <laughs> and like finding this thing and bringing it to the checkout counter and then walking out with it I would love arms. to know how much that cost back 
I'm sure at that point in time, this 70? was probably around seventy dollars. Yeah. yeah, and there wasn't this was this wasn't pre Amazon, but it was pre my parents using Amazon. So like I I think I had bought some things off of Amazon by the year two thousand and three, but they weren't really using the internet to shop. They were going to the store to get everything. I was already into Scarface, as you heard in the song. I had the VHS of this, which was a double tape VHS. The year 2003 was definitely when Scarface had a resurgence, probably because of Vice City, uh, which came out in 2002. And Vice City was so obviously a Scarface-inspired uh, video game yeah. that I think it resurged the movie in popular culture. And also there was the hip-hop embrace mm-hmm. of Scarface, which there's... Oh, I didn't really talk about the, the special features on mine. There's a, a feature on this that's produced by Def Jam that's all about the influence of this movie on hip-hop culture, particularly in the early 2000s. And it sucks. It's not a very good feature. It's by far the worst feature on here. It's not particularly insightful. Mine also has um, those four making ofs, the mm-hmm. rebirth, the creating, and the acting, which mm-hmm. I watched all of those. Uh, it also has the TV version montage, which is funny. It's basically min- shows you how they replaced all the cussing. And so there's like the classic line, where did you get that beauty scar, tough guy eating pussy? In the in the television version, he says, where did you get that beauty scar, tough guy eating pineapple? Oh, my God. Which honestly makes more sense. Yeah, but that's offensive. <laughs> eating pineapple? Oh, because of, yeah. of, yeah. But... Pineapples are sharp. They do have like little scratchy things. You could. Who's eating pineapple through the skin? Okay. Well, I'm no expert on the female form, but how are you going to get that eating pussy? That's what he says. He brings up a valid point. Another one that's really funny, which also involves the word pussy, is there's a line in the movie where he says, this whole world is a giant pussy just waiting to get fucked. It's a pineapple? No. in In the TV version, he says, this whole world is a giant chicken just waiting to get plucked. Oh, my God. Again, probably offensive. I don't know. But this movie kind of has a bad rap because it I think a lot of douchebags like this movie. It's a it's a college poster. We're not calling any of the our fans who watch this movie and liked it douchebags. Look, what my my point was going to be, I hate it because I love this movie and yeah. I've always loved this movie. There's and, a duality to it. Yeah. The appeal is that it's a story about a person who comes from nowhere and nothing and can gain everything even though it's also a cautionary tale, because the movie is deep and layered and complex, um, if you're dumb, you can read it the wrong way. Because it's, it, it, the, what, what this movie does is really show you how appealing and how attractive this lifestyle is. And I think a lot of people can misinterpret that as, well, that's what I should do. Yeah, you know there's somebody watching it who, who's looking at... Um... The, down, the downfall of Tony Montana be like, oh, well, that wouldn't happen to me. Exactly. I mean, yeah. all the sequences of him getting money and selling this Coke and like rising up in the world are fun. And the music is a huge part of that. It has a great score by Giorgio Moroder. Would you put a Tony Montana poster on your wall? So that I would, I would, honestly. I mean, like if I had a, if I had like a room that had movie posters, I would wear a Scarface shirt if I knew that people didn't look at me and go, well, you got that at Target. A Scarface bowling shirt would be cool. I remember I had to, I went to- oh, uh, Could you imagine a bowling ball with Tony Montana's face on it? Or oh, it was. it's like a clear like epoxy bowling ball and there's just a is mountain it, of cocaine inside <laughs> of it. I was going to say his head is inside <laughs> of it. I went when I, this is, I won't tell the story, but when I was 14, so 
before I got this on DVD, I did get arrested for something and I had to go to court and talk to a judge. And there was a bunch of other kids there who also had to go and like get their sentencing essentially. And I remember specifically there was one kid there wearing this big shirt that had Tony Montana on it, pointing a gun. And of course the judge just like read this dude for filth. It was like, what are you doing going to court wearing this shirt? I'm over here dressed like I'm going to church. Sure. Go back. So you you saw the movie first on VHS and mm-hmm. then you got uh, like at a rental, you rented yep. it. I So I saw this movie. I went into this movie totally expecting like a Godfather style film. I'd seen The Godfather, also a double tape, very long movie, epic. The Godfather is definitely violent, but Godfather is very slow. It's meditative. It's dark. And so when I rented... Uh, Scarface, I was preparing myself for like a movie that was going to be much more understated like The Godfather. And what I ended up getting was the probably the flashiest movie I'd ever seen at the time. It's so pop, it's so colorful, and it's so excessively gory and over the top in every kind of way that I was immediately like in love with the movie and then immediately bought it. Like I remember renting it one week and then going out and, and buying the VHS of it the next week. Oh, so you already had the VHS and then your parents bought you exactly. the, the yeah. DVD. By, I, I they probably, had no issue giving you this movie no, or letting you watch my it? My parents weren't super strict about um, R-rated movies and violent movies. And I think in their minds, they also thought the same thing. They thought, oh, well, Scarface, that's like a Godfather. So that's a classic. Hmm. You know, the only kinds of movies they were like, really iffy about were ones that like were erotic thrillers mm. that they thought was going to have basic like, a lot instinct of... exactly they probably wouldn't have let me buy mm. basic instinct which is what much more tame than scarface sexually it's much more explicit except for that pineapple scene where she flashes her pineapple <laughs> <laughs> well speaking of pineapples opening let's talk about the opening of the movie the movie opens with the universal logo and immediately they kick in that that giorgio Moroder scarface theme mm-hmm. and it sounds I went watching it this time. I was like, this reminds me so much of Michael Naiman's score for the cook, the thief, his wife mm-hmm. and her lover. It's a berm, 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 berm. Definitely. So many times I kept expecting that to, yeah. to come in. And it, 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 that's a Michael Naiman score for all of his Peter Greenaway stuff is, mm-hmm. is music that you and I used a ton when we were first starting yeah. making films also to another movie like texas chainsaw massacre that opens with a little title crawl title crawl yeah mm-hmm. there's there's actually a few connections to texas mm-hmm. chainsaw More massacre than one. this um but yeah great score um i i love uh, the debbie Har- harry song uh, rush rush you yes. know Rush, rush. With yeah, Yeo. Giorgio Moroder not so, only did the score for it, but mm-hmm. he also composed the music for all of the songs in the film, like Rush, Rush, like She's on Fire, Push It to the Limit. So you you took the uh, music theme behind Push It to the Limit and wrote new lyrics for the opening. Can yeah. I can I just read a little bit of the original lyrics Please. to Push It to the Limit yeah. by Paul Engeman? Push It to the Limit. Walk along the razor's edge. But don't look down, just keep your head or you'll be finished. Open up the limit, past the point of no return. Mm. You've reached the top, but still you got to learn how to keep it. Mm. Hit the wheel and double the stakes. Throttle wide open like a bat out of hell. You crash the gates, going for the back of beyond. Nothing going to stop you. There's nothing that strong. Mm. So close now, you're nearly at the brink. So push it. Ooh, yeah. I mean, it sounds like a song that would be in... 
a Rocky movie, mm-hmm. a Karate Kid movie. It's what my therapist tells me every time. You know? <laughs> I'm, I'm at the brink and they, they're just like, push it. Push just it. go past. Go yeah. to the back of the beyond. Mm-hmm. Back of the beyond. Whatever that means. I always heard it as like it's the middle of nowhere. Mm. Like it's like the the place in Earth where like nobody goes. It's the void. Now, the, the opening text crawl basically describes a real life scenario that was going on at the time, which was it's called the Mariel Boat Lift. And essentially, um, there was like a mass immigration of Cuban refugees that were fleeing from Cuba, from Castro's communist reign to America. There was like 125,000 refugees that came in to Florida. And what the text crawl in the film says is that in the process, Castro decided to empty his prisons and essentially smuggle all of his Cuban criminals into America to get rid of them. I started looking into that, and that's not that's basically like uh, a rumor that was going on around the time. I think it says something like of the 125,000 people that came, 25,000 of them were criminals. That's insane. I think people did believe it at the time, but it has since been debunked. There's a really good NPR article about how it's true that Castro did push some criminals out into this. That's That's not false, but the number of that is more like in the hundreds than... 25,000. And some reports said like 40,000. Now, do you think that was just exaggerated for the sake of the movie? Uh, no, or that was is what that, that was, people that, were saying. That's then. what people yeah. were saying at the time. But that's, you know, anytime there's a mass group of refugees coming into the United States, a big portion of America gets paranoid and mm-hmm. they get scared and they start saying shit. Yeah, it's just fear mongering. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, um, this movie does use that as, and it's not the people who are saying that. It's the it's the government, it's it's presidents, it's people like Trump, it's media outlets yeah. too, and also too you have to consider what a what a Cuban criminal was at the time. Fidel Castro was putting people in prison for all sorts of stuff. I mean, the the article points out that a lot of people who he imprisoned were people that were just trying to feed their children. They were not criminals. They were doing things that he deemed criminal Mm -hmm. and put them in. And so even people who came that had Cuban criminal records were not necessarily like hardened, dangerous criminals. But the the main thing is, is that the, the number of those people who did have a criminal record was severely less than what this movie and what people of the time say. And so that's something that, um, you know, retroactively we should, we should say is like just patentedly not true. And this movie at the time got a lot of flack for it from the Cuban community in America. There was a lot of protests about this movie. Uh, they were very concerned about the reputation that this movie was going to do to the Cuban community in America, especially, and people had been immigrating from Cuba for for years before this all happened. And so it was giving all Cuban immigrants a bad name. And so they were protesting the film. They started to shoot this movie in Miami, but eventually had to flee because it was getting dangerous to shoot there because people were so against the making of this movie that they had to go shoot the rest of it in Los Angeles eventually. And you know what? I get it. I understand from from the people's perspectives, it's kind of like if you subscribe to our Patreon, we've had a similar conversation about what M. Night Shyamalan does. Mm-hmm. He uses real world things to tell his fictional story. And yeah. ultimately, that's the issue here. I don't think anybody has an issue with Oliver Stone and Brian De Palma making a movie about a criminal rising the ranks. It's the fact that they decided to base it in this reality of a Cuban refugee fleeing 
and making it into America and becoming that. Yeah, person. but that's that's also part of like why representation is so important because the the community is probably just seeing white or American actors and creatives and crew mm-hmm. working on this movie, so they they don't feel a sense of reassurance that they're going to be. Uh, represented right. accurately. I mean, the only like what two prominent Cuban roles in this uh, movie is Manny and Chichi are the only two <laughs> right. who are real. And Chichi Cuban. is arguably not that prominent. Right. This movie got a ton of controversy at the time for being very violent, but in today's standards, by far the most egregious thing about this movie is the casting. The fact that mm-hmm. basically every Cuban character that is a main character is played by a white person in this movie mm-hmm. is- with like dark makeup yes uh, yeah it's like to me it's it's no different it's as ridiculous as casting matt damon as yes. a japanese character like <laughs> why is it any different i mean i'm not uh, and i'm also you know we have to look at this thing in the context of the time but 1983 was or 82 when they shot it was not that long ago no. you know it's like they they well, knew. We're just we're we're still behind on representation yeah. in films, and we were way behind back then. Yeah, Stephen Bauer is like you said the only actual Cuban actor in one of the main parts, and dude, he's proof that had they tried, they could have found just as good of performances from the actual right. Cuban community because he's in, he's incredible. He had never done a movie before this, but the, the like he showed up, and they were just like, "You are the guy," and almost immediately got the part. And had they done that for all, you know, to an extent, I understand why you would want to cast somebody like Al Pacino in the main role, because this is a big Hollywood movie. It's a lot of money and he's a huge star. It's not acceptable today by today's standards. You would yeah. never do it today. But if Al Pacino was the only person they cast that was not Cuban to play a Cuban character, it wouldn't be quite as egregious as the fact that they did it for almost every other role. That's, right. that's kind of a gross thing about the movie. All that being said, I think the performances are all really good. Let's let's dig in. Let, let's focus on Pacino. Do you feel like his performance holds up today by today's standards? Not just in that he is uh, a non-Cuban impersonating one, but his performance in general, the the largeness of it, the the accent, the choices that he makes. You feel like it holds up. You feel like it's a canon-worthy performance. Personally, yes. I mean, I think time has shown that it is canon-worthy. Um, it is absolutely over the top in a very similar way that like Jack Nicholson is over the top in The Shining. You can argue that it's not realistic. You could argue that his accent isn't authentic, but I don't think you can argue that this character isn't iconic and isn't hasn't permeated its way into pop culture in a very significant way. I mean, even Brian De Palma says in one of the documentaries that every actor he's ever worked with has a Tony Montana impression. And I know that as a kid watching this movie, Al Pacino's performance is a huge reason why this movie had such an impact on me because he's electric. And there's something about him too that is very mimicable. You want to do it. We're probably going to do some Tony Montana Mm -hmm. impressions on this podcast. And let me just clarify, we're not generalizing a Cuban accent. We are doing... Al Pacino's Tony Montana if we do a Tony Montana accent. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a good performance. I think I what I'm what I'm getting at is I, I'm having a hard time uh separating Al Pacino from it. It's so hard not to see Al Pacino and it's so hard not to see 
a person emulating an accent. So it just, uh, it's a, it, I can't take my eyes off him. That's yeah. for sure. I agree. Like it's electric. It's, it's energetic. It's uh, catchy. It's iconic. Mm-hmm. I appreciate it a lot. Yeah. I just, um, I just, yeah, I have a hard time right. seeing. Yeah. And he talked about it in one of the documentaries where he, he worked with a dialect coach, but he also said that his goal was not necessarily to be authentic because he felt like he would never get there. And so his goal was to like come up with something unique and uh, an interpretation of the character mm-hmm. rather a car- than a caricature of a, exactly. It fits with the movie. I would say this movie is over the top in a lot of ways. I would say this is a weird De Palma movie. Mm-hmm. Um, in the grand scheme of his filmography, he before this was mostly doing Hitchcockian mm-hmm. psychological slasher esque horror thrillers, mm-hmm. and this was kind of his first attempt at doing something that was much more grounded in a way, and but epic, and it's you know it's it's huge, opulent. It's opulent and it's operatic, and you know he was he was always doing operatic stuff, but in a very different style. Like, don't you feel like his the classic hallmarks of De Palma are a little bit more subdued in this film than they are in something like Dressed to Kill or Blowout? Definitely, I think he's he's exercising his muscles a little bit more in those movies, but I feel like he's you know he's paving the way for you know what he does with like you know mission impossible is like another movie that the untouchables doesn't feel like a de palma movie but it's there if you if yeah. you look closely i think it's him stretching i think mm-hmm. he he was actively trying to like get into um a more prestigious territory with this movie mm-hmm. you know his friends scorsese had done raging bull before this movie that was arguably his most prestigious movie that he had made up until that point i'm sure de palma was like i want to do something like that you know i want to get mm-hmm. the kind of recognition that he's getting um and also too he's working with an oliver stone script and this movie really does feel like a blending of de palma style with oliver stone style yes which is fun that's a fun combo it's, i mean i love it honestly mm-hmm. i love that it's a, an outlier in de palma's repertoire because it makes it really interesting and you still get a lot of de palma isms in the movie but he has to make room for the Oliver Stone-isms that are in there. And it sounds like he wanted to really do Oliver Stone's script justice. He didn't want to come in and like De Palma-ize it. He wanted to like portray it authentically. Mm-hmm. And I think he got burned in this movie because I think everybody believed they were making a, a really good movie. But critically, it was like a huge... People yeah, but that, yeah, that's one that's typical for De Palma. And yes. two, it's like, you know, the proof is in the pudding years later. People exactly. are still talking about this movie. But I think in the time, he felt like I just put my heart and soul in something that we all believed was great and the critics are telling me that it's a piece of shit which is i think why he does body double next because he kind of does that in his career where he'll he'll take these swings to do something more prestigious and then when and if it fails he then goes back to what he's always been good at and so body double is a real fuck you movie it's like all right you didn't like my movie. You thought it was too violent. I'm going to give you like the most gratuitous shit ever. I this movie motivated me to finally watch Cocaine Cowboys, the document, oh, the 2006 yeah, documentary. It. Mm-hmm. It's a little scrappy. Uh, it's a, it's got a it's got a scrapbook kind of quality to it. Doesn't really feel well organized, um, but the pieces are all there, like to paint a portrait of 1980s Miami, and it was shocking. Uh, one how. Uh, ca- how much chaos there was back then like just uh, a wild west of murder and 
street violence and this influx, the origins of the influx of cocaine into our country. I didn't really know any of that. And I was surprised how much of it was in line with Scarface. Yeah. So to see the parallels between what uh, DEA and police and the people of Miami were dealing with back then juxtaposed with Scarface I was mm-hmm. like this is not that it's much not I think kind of the point is that like it was so over the top yeah. and this movie has to be over the top and push it to the limit yeah. <laughs> in order to capture the mm-hmm. actual chaos of what was happening back then I think uh, I don't, I'm I'm sure there's a wide range of reasons why it was critically ravaged but there were some uh, different opinions and interpretations that aspects of this movie is kind of like a roast of Hollywood and a roast of executives and producers and studios and stuff like that. Obviously, it's stone script, but De Palma is kind of like having Tony Montana talk to these people above him, like Omar Suarez in a sort of like, fuck you, man. Yeah. Um, it's like what De Palma wants to say to his critics to executives to the MPAA you know and also to this world this opulent world of drugs cocaine Mm -hmm. excess uh very much mirrors Hollywood at the time for sure uh let's take a quick break and we will be right many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Back. And we're back with Cinema Possessed, and we are talking Scarface. So De Palma said that he kind of saw this movie as like a modern take on the treasure of the Sierra Madre, but instead of gold that they're going after and gold being the thing that like corrupts and turns people into monsters, it's cocaine. Is this the first movie to do cocaine as like the monkey's paw where it's like cocaine is this thing that brings the wealth that you can turn into money, but it's also the thing that causes your downfall. You would later see it done in Goodfellas. You see it happen in like Boogie Nights Summer of Sam, but is there a movie that did it before? To me, to me, Scarface is like maybe the first one that I can think of that like really, yeah, 
I mean, they have cocaine and Easy Rider, but they, I wouldn't say Easy Rider. I wouldn't say the cocaine is their downfall. No, I think, I mean, it, it's like, just look at the timeline of cocaine's rise in, mm-hmm. in America. I think this movie lines up with that. And the way people were consuming cocaine back then, no one was thinking that this is problematic or that this is bad. Right, right. So the, the whole narrative changed on cocaine. Uh, but at first it started off as like something that was seen as uh, high society and social, mm-hmm. just like drinking. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think the movie also, too, does so much more than than focus on uh, the downfalls of cocaine, but just sort of the ills of modern society and specifically American society and the, right. per- and the pursuit of more and more and more in excess. I think, yes, it's about cocaine, but it's also about capitalism and greed and power and right. um, all of that stuff. That first shot of Miami starts on like a billboard of Miami that's like painted and beautiful, but it's like kind of cartoonish. And then you pull out and that sort of flat image of the billboard then expands into the three-dimensional actual Miami behind it, which kind of becomes like a motif that De Palma does a couple of times in the movie where he's he's showing Miami backdrops that are painted on walls behind the characters, painted on their shirts. And it feels like, you know, this movie being about the American dream. That's the dream. That's like the dreamy version of the life that Tony wants, that he's wearing on his back that he's surrounding himself in his offices with. He's always chasing Mm -hmm. that American dream. An illusion. I have a theory about that scene where it pans down to reveal the restaurant, the diner that they're working Mm -hmm. at. The name of the restaurant is called El Paraiso, which means the paradise. And my theory is that that is kind of like, you know, that's the beginning of, that's Tony leaving. He's literally leaving paradise he quits the restaurant to go take this job to which is so satisfying mm-hmm. it's always fun to watch characters quit their shitty job yeah do. yeah he says i retire uh he walks away from el paraiso and i thought that was interesting that it's like oh yeah that's like that's the that's the fork in the road you know you start in a restaurant and you you kind of go from there but he decides to leave and take right. take the life of um of crime right which is the first gig that they get is to go do this drug deal with these Colombians. All they have to do is go bring all this money to this motel, trade it for cocaine. This is kind of like the first bit of De Palma you get in this movie because this is a real suspense sequence here. Has a great buildup where they walk in and everybody's acting really nice. And there's these great shots where it keeps moving to the windows and then match cutting on the outside of the window and then moving back. And it's very realistic. It's not super showy, but it's doing just enough to like get your heart rate up. Of course, everything does go wrong. They tie up um, the guy who's accompanying Tony Montana. They, they handcuff him to the bathtub. They pull out a yellow chainsaw, very similar to the yellow chainsaw in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm-hmm. And they give us a scene that... I would say is bloodier than anything in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, does not show as much as you think it shows. Yeah, there's a behind-the-scenes still that shows a severed prop arm hanging, uh, handcuffed to the uh, shower uh, rod, but you don't actually see any of that in the movie. I I have this book called Double De Palma that is all about the making of Body Double, and he makes it very clear in this book that his troubles with the MPAA came to a head on Scarface. He'd always had issues with the MPAA. They were always sort of like 
coming down on him for the violence in his films, but they really, really came down on Scarface hard. And this sequence was the big factor in that. They basically were like convinced that they saw more in this sequence than they actually were. And he kept trying to say like, we never even shot footage of chainsaws going through arms and legs. But they right. were like, you did and we saw it and you have to cut it. And they kept giving Scarface an X rating. He had to go back like five or six times just trying to get an R rating for this movie and they kept stamping it with an X to the point where um, De Palma and Martin Bregman actually went to the press and got a bunch of journalists involved and basically said like, they're taking advantage of us. The MPAA is censoring our movie. They're making us cut it to shreds. So they got all these journalists to get involved and they got people to make statements. They got some people from the... Psychologists and ex-DEA. To say like people. this movie was actually like important and that it was mm -hmm. showcasing some things that were necessary. Yeah, it's true. It's an anti-drug movie and it needs to be shown. Right. Essentially what they were going and fighting for was this X-rated version of it. And so De Palma said... Well, if I'm going to go in and fight for an X-rated version, what's the difference between this X-rated version that I've cut to shreds that they're still giving an X rating versus the original version that I submitted that also has an X rating? That was after they won. So it, the panel, the MPAA panel voted 18 to like two to pass the third cut of the movie, which gave the film an R. And so then De Palma was like, well, if this one gets an R, then all of them yeah. are an R. What's the difference? Um, so yeah, the version of Scarface we're all watching is the first cut. Is the original yeah. cut with everything in there. And as you can see, when you watch the sequence, there is blood that is spraying off from off camera, but you don't actually see any carving. But man, it's a brutal sequence. It is. And then, and most of that is the the suspense mastery of De Palma. And by the time that mm -hmm. they come blasting in and Tony Montana is able to escape, you are like holding your breath. Yeah, those are those are the scenes to me that feel the most De Palma. And I wish there was more of that in yeah. in the movie. So that then they go and they have to bring the money to Frank. I forgot that the character of Frank was supposed to be mm -hmm. Cuban. Yeah. Uh, Robert Loja. That's the craziest one. You get that scene and he's got an accent and his name is Frank Lopez. And I'm like, oh, he's an, is yet again another white actor playing a Cuban in this movie. Uh, F. Murray Abraham yeah. is Italian. Mm -hmm. B playing Cuban. The guy who plays uh, Sosa is from Wisconsin. Yeah, he's Polish. <laughs> he's born in Wisconsin. Um, they bring the money to Frank. You kind of get your first taste of the glamorous. Ferdinando Scarfiati was the visual consultant who apparently like came up with all the set designs and the colors and everything. You get introduced to this color scheme of like white and red through the movie, which to me feels like cocaine and blood. Mm -hmm. We get introduced to Michelle Pfeiffer in this scene, mm -hmm. and she's incredible looking. She looks like a platinum Cleopatra. She comes down. There's this great mm -hmm. sequence where she comes into the elevator, and you don't see her face right away. You're kind of just looking at her back, and the camera does this big push in on Tony Montana, and it's great because the guys are all talking, and so you can hear the conversation continuing, but but you start to go into Montana's head as mm -hmm. you push forward. And the sound starts to drop out and Elvira's theme, which is kind of a variation of Gina's theme. It's the same theme. Yeah, it's the same mm -hmm. theme comes in, beautiful. And you're in, you're like, this is suddenly like I'm hooked into like his his romantic courtship you of could, this woman. Yeah, you could hardly call it romantic, but yeah, his obsession with, yeah, it's well, a toxic version of Extremely. Yes. I mean, um, I get the vibe that Michelle Pfeiffer is trapped 
in this world. Totally. She's trapped with Frank. And then when Tony eventually gets her, she's fucking trapped yeah, with Tony. That was a creepy scene oh, when yeah. he went after he kills Frank mm-hmm. and then he goes and says, Wake up, you're coming with me. Like, pack your stuff. Oh, my God, it's like, yeah. God. I mean, she... Tony's a toxic dude. Yeah, of he, course. He, I, I don't, we don't condone any of Tony's actions. No, it's very movie. clear he's the villain. Um, so they go to the Babylon Club. Well, but wait, the, uh, the scene you were just describing yeah. that slow zooms on Michelle Pfeiffer and mm-hmm. then slow zooms on Tony. I watched it twice and I tuned in to the background dialogue. The first time you watch it, the background dialogue feels like it just kind of like fades away and you're in Tony's POV. But the second time I, I watched it, I tuned into the background dialogue and it was so funny. It's just like maybe improv, but it's like Manny just talking about him getting shot. And <laughs> and uh, Robert Loja, Robert, what's his character? Frank. Frank, Frank is is like, uh, you know, like what what happened? And he was like, well, I went in there uh, with with my Uzi and I started shooting and like an idiot, I ran out of bullets. And so this one guy that I thought that I shot and killed was actually not dead. And he came back up and he shot me and the bullet went right through me and went into the wall yeah. and Frank's like so then what did you do and it just goes on yeah. like they're having this whole conversation you know, about honestly, him getting shot as you would like if you yeah. went through the experiences that these people did you'd want to tell everybody yeah. you would you would have yeah but he's telling it like a tell. child yeah. telling a funny story at the playground at school <laughs> again uh, Stephen and then Bauer I shot him and I killed him Stephen Bauer is so good in this movie he's yeah. so natural and he's very funny and just like a hunk and he's the perfect counterbalance to Tony Montana, who is not without charm, but he's scary. Yes, and I would say overall, I mean, Manny is the most lovable character, but he's also not without his flaws. Other than the fact that he also is a murderer, I I really wish he didn't have... That tongue scene is funny, but it's like, man, when he does it to that girl and he walks away and he's like, lesbian, it's just... That's the that's the it's bad. That's the 80s for you. And also, it felt very familiar of like uh, that adolescent mentality of like i think i figured out a way to get a girl right and it's it's, it's only pursuing women yeah like uh, like all the other objects that these two people are pursuing in mm-hmm. their life it's just one more thing to put around you in yeah. your empire they go to the babylon club in this sequence you really get the flirtatious slash negging that Tony and Elvira have with each other. You start to get a taste of what their relationship is going to be. She's mostly fending him off. She's mostly going like, watch yourself, buddy. But every now and then, he'll say something that will like get a little crack of a smile out of her that goes a long way for for like telling the audience she's there's an attraction to this guy. She would be. Yeah, I think you you saw a little more than I did, but you know, I believe that that it's there. It's just it's so she, subtle. It just still feels like. Uh, again, I just prefer that interpretation that you said earlier that she's like trapped. Yeah. You know, so she's not actually attracted right. to Tony Montana. I believe her when she says, "You're the last." Even if I was, <laughs> you know. You'd be the last person yeah. I'd ever fuck. She basically. essentially says, I'll never fuck you, even if I'm deserted on an island with you. But then he goes like, oh, yeah, baby, now you're talking my language. And she's gives a, she gives a little like smile like, I, you little bastard. I don't think so. She does. Watch the scene again. And then the following scene where he picks her up in that ridiculous zebra car. Mm-hmm. That scene, too, is kind of filled with that. There's a There's a moment where he gets in and he tries to kiss her. And she pushes him away. And that's awkward. But then... 
there's a that's he he has the hat on his head and he says what would you kiss me if I wear the hat and you can tell that it's probably an improv line because she cracks Mm -hmm. and she starts smiling and that's what I'm talking about like he's he is able to crack through it a That's little bit. That's Al Pacino charming her. That's not Tony but the, Montana. But it, you have to take it in the context of the movie too. By the time he's like at the pool with her and he's saying, I want to marry you. You're a tiger and I want to be with you. She doesn't say, no, never, no way. She says, what about Frank? You know, like she's basically like, well, what are we going to do? Uh, you know, let's now it's by force she's and in, she's trapped she's in hell, dude. She's, she's picking a, a better. What is she? She's choosing between Frank. Yes. And Tony exactly. Montana. Frank sucks. It's uh, exactly she's she's between a rock and a hard place. And she's just picking what she and she also sees the writing on the wall. She's like, Tony's going to fucking kill Frank. So I may as well go yeah. with Tony. Tony goes and visits his mom. This scene made me cry. And I, I was hiding it because it's not really like that emotional of a scene. I felt stupid that I was like getting teared up by it. I don't think so. But it, in this scene, you get introduced to Tony's sister, Gina. Mm-hmm. You get, again, get that great theme. And this, the theme is just such an emotional theme in and of itself. It's very, the, the Marauder theme for Gina is very childlike and very sweet, but there's like a melancholy to it that like you almost know this relationship is destined for tragedy when you hear that music that comes up mm-hmm. and it's so emotional to me because it's like, she is, she really looks up to him and she's so excited that he's in her life and you just know it's going to fucking go terribly. And he does. The problem with Tony is that he doesn't very much like you were saying with, with Michelle Pfeiffer's character that he sees her as an object. He sees Gina as an object too. Only Gina is an object of purity. Gina is like um, an unsullied virgin angel that that is like the only pure thing in his life and therefore must be protected at all costs. And so his his relationship to her is so toxic because he doesn't think of her as a human being. He doesn't think of her as like a person with their own agency. It's like, you know, she's the Virgin Mary to him. She's the symbol that he must not let anyone else touch. And there's a sadness to that. Definitely. It's uh, it also the way that I look at his relationship with Gina, I think, is the way most people do. It's like there's one version of it where he is sort of protecting this virgin, you know, uh, this one pure character in his life to make sure she doesn't turn out like like he does. I don't know if he has that much awareness. There's another version where he wants to fuck his sister. I've. I've seen this movie many times before. I spoiler alert, you know, Gina dies at the end. Right. I forgot that she dies, so that took me by surprise. And I forgot that there were incest vibes. So when I That she makes pretty clear too by the end of the movie. Yeah. She's like, You want to fuck me, don't you? Mm-hmm. I did watch the deleted scenes, which I agree they're it's kind of like what I was saying with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. There's no context for them. So you're just getting this rollout of of raw footage essentially. But I sat through and watched them, and there was a deleted scene that I think is actually in the movie. It's in the montage, though. But it's um, Gina trying on a dress at the dress store, and Tony is there with her. And in the deleted scene, the person who's helping them at the dress store says, um, your wife looks beautiful. And Tony says, she's not my wife, she's my sister. And again, it's like the movie... Mm -hmm. Drawing that parallel of the incestuous relationship. And then also to hearing Giorgio Moroder talk about 
that character and he named Gina's theme Gina and Elvira's theme and Giorgio Moroder says Tony is in love with Gina and Tony is in love with Elvira and I wanted a theme that worked for both of them Um, and then yeah of course when at the end when she says he he murders his best friend he murders Manny because he's sleeping with his sister yeah but it's like obviously they're in love they love each other they have something really special they're about to get married or they just got married and tony doesn't have that in his in his life even when in his relationship with elvira and he take he destroys her life and for what reason it's like is manny if she's happy is manny really that problematic that Tony, you know, he's just out of his mind at that point, high on cocaine. Um, He even says, like, what did I do, you know, by the end of it? I'd really like that Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio, who plays Gina, his sister, Mm -hmm. also Italian. Not Cuban. Not Cuban. Uh, But great performance. I think she's really good in the movie. She does not take shit from Tony. Every time Tony comes after her about something, when he confronts her about something, she fires right back. And when he threatens her, which he does multiple times in the movie, he'll say like, I'm going to wipe the floor at the, with you all over the place. And she'll go, do it, do it now. I want to see it. And never once does she cower to him and says like, I can fuck whoever I want. I can see whoever I want. You're not my dad. I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, the, he said the, the last time I saw you, you were like a little boy. Yeah. That's what he says to her. Tony goes to Bolivia. Uh, we get to meet Sosa, played by Paul Shinar, Polish, playing Cuban, who becomes a crucial character in Don't this. Don't fuck me, Tony. Don't ever fuck me, Tony. He has a really good voice. Mm-hmm. Hilarious. I, I don't know who does these bios on IMDb. It says, attractive, dark-featured character actor with a voice like thunder and eyes like a wolf. I mean, That's accurate. That's the official IMDb description. That's pretty He probably wrote that or, yeah. his, or his agent did. Uh, he goes to Bolivia to make this deal with Sosa. He ends up renegotiating the deal for Frank without letting Frank know. Of course, F. Murray Abraham's character is very put off by this. And what do you know? They end up tossing F. Murray Abraham out of a helicopter with a noose around his neck. Great stunt. Yeah, good stunt. Because um, he, was an, he was an informant. They found out that he was an informant. Or so they say. Well, actually, I would totally believe it because it turns out Frank's an informant. Frank works with that cop at... Uh, in the scene where he does. I don't know if he's really an informant, but he, they have they have a handshake deal to, you know. Which I think would qualify. No, an informant would just rat people out. They're, he's kicking money over to the police and the police are helping him make deals. But doesn't he say, but in that scene, doesn't he say like, we tell you when some shit's going down, you tell us when some shit's going down. Yeah, you throw down. us like a couple sort of, you know, bottom feeders right. and, you know, that's yeah. how this works. It's like he gets to make some busts and he makes money off of the cocaine trade yeah. um, and keeps him, you know, above ground. Also in Bolivia, you get introduced to the sunglasses guy who ends yes. up being the hitman. Mm-hmm. He's one of Sosa's guys. He's just kind of plays in the background, but you can see him there. And the landlord from Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. Yeah, who is who is a pretty scary dude. Mm-hmm. He's named like uh, Shadow. Yeah, I love that shot of him when he's like, you could see him in the, the window phone. and he has the, and the phone. And there's a music cue that goes... Mm-hmm. It's so funny. Yeah, it's good. It's And it's creepy. You skipped over Tony's great line. All, all I have in this world is my balls and my word, and I don't break them for nobody. Yeah. It's a great line. He's he mentions his balls a lot in this mm-hmm. movie. I want to say that in a meeting, when when we're in a meeting for something, and like 
we just get heckled or somebody <laughs> asks us to do something we don't want to do, you know? Do you think they'll respond well? They're that? like, what does that have to do with um, this rewrite that you need us to do? We don't want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he goes back home. Frank is not happy. Tony kind of goes out on his own. He's actively pursuing Elvira. Back to that pool scene real quickly. Did you notice that they're drinking J&B scotch in mm -hmm. that? And have you? do you know that that's like a scotch in movies like that's the it's the whiskey that like kurt russell drinks in the thing mm. that jmb scotch bottle pops up in tons of movies throughout from the 70s to the 80s i think it started in italy what's maybe? the significance of it and it's just like a bottle that pops up in movies a lot it's it's yellow and green mm -hmm. um but i thought we should we should take note of it every time we see him in a movie that mm. we cover just to see like JMB bottle in that mm -hmm. one. So then the Babylon Club sequence. This is an amazing sequence. This is a yet again another De Palma sequence. I kind of like this club. I'm not a club guy, but I have to say the clubs in this movie are appealing to me. Can you imagine this? These sequences shot today and what clubs look like today? They're just kind of dark and ravey and like this, these are so bright and everybody's dressed up really nice and like there's just something about the vibes of these clubs that I'm sort of like I get it. I don't think I would have a good time there even if I went now but watching it on film i find stuff like the babylon club to be an attractive yeah they, place they kind of feel like disco clubs or something like that mm -hmm. uh very elegant they're seating but you know i gotta say that the most appealing aspect of these clubs is is octavio <laughs> we'll get to octavio octavio's coming <laughs> um in this sequence so you start to get all the good songs from marauder every time they go to the club you start to get like Rush, rush, give me yayo. Mm -hmm. um, which are all just gorgeous. Marauder had just come off of doing American Gigolo, which mm -hmm. had Call Me by Blondie, and he did all the music for that, and that was a huge soundtrack. So I think they were trying to capitalize on doing that they again. They did a great job. And yeah, there's a, there's a lot of um, stylistic connections to American Gigolo with this movie. Do you know he got nominated for Golden Globe for this score for the score of Scarface and the score of Flashdance in the same year, both in 1983, and he won for Flashdance. So he he got he beat himself in the same nomination. That's a good problem to have. For sure. So in this sequence, Tony's sitting watching Richard Belzer do, do stand-up, who we all know from Law & Order and who just passed away recently, actually. So R.I.P. to Belzer. Mm -hmm. And we see that there's these two hitmen sitting there. Yeah. We don't know where they come from yet, but we can assume it's probably Frank. And we get clarification on that later. Mm -hmm. And yes, this is another De Palma sequence in which uh, a, a very strange clown comes out named Octavio mm -hmm. and starts dancing to like dancing in the night. So bizarre. And you can tell Tony Montana thinks it's bizarre too because yeah. they keep cutting to shots of him looking at it with this like glazed over like, what the fuck? I'd love to think that Brian De Palma surprised Al Pacino with that. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, even, and it even cuts to the hitmen at one point and they kind of look at him like, what the fuck mm -hmm, They put their guns thing? away. Yeah, they're like, let's not do it. Do yeah. this. Uh, and so he starts creating a very De Palma-esque thing where like the hitmen start paying attention to the spotlights. Mm -hmm. And they essentially decide they're going to wait until the spotlight hits Tony Montana before they fire on him, which I don't know why in real life you would necessarily do that, but I can understand why De Palma wants to create it as like a thing where he sets it up so that we know the second that that spotlight goes on to Tony, they're going to fire on him. But the spotlight is on Octavio. 
And Octavio is sort of making his way around this restaurant doing these little dances. Mm -hmm. And at this point, the music is a Marauder uh, music. It's dance, dance, dance. Mm -hmm. And the sequence does something here that I love in movies, where it takes diegetic music that is playing in the scene and then overlaps score onto it to create even more suspense. And in this case, it's Giorgio Moroder doing both of them. The, I get goosebumps watching it because there's something so cool about hearing music from a scene playing while a suspenseful score is kind of like blending and melding with it. It happens in uh, The Terminator as well. When she's at the Tech Noir Club in the first Terminator, she's at the club and the music of that is like, a, a, you've got me burning. the Terminator theme starts to blend in with the you've got me burning and it does the same thing it creates this sort of like hair raising tension that uh, I just love when movies do it another thing that does it really well is that Key and Peele sketch where they're um, the 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 aerobics dancing dancing, and you're hearing that song play but when Clint Howard is raising up the signs saying there's been an accident. Mm-hmm. This tension-filled score kind of bleeds in and starts to meld with it. I just fucking love it. Yeah. Um, it's an exciting sequence. Have to give a shout-out before we leave that sequence. Some buddies of ours, Matt Mazzani and Ian Skalski. Do you remember this? They did a short film called Octavio's Last Stand. Do you remember ever seeing this? Oh, that sounds familiar. Yeah. They did a short film where they take that sequence... But you see the behind the scenes. You see what's going on behind the stage. And you get introduced to the man who's playing Octavio, who is being played by Eddie Pepitone. Mm-hmm. And you see that it's like, it's his daughter's birthday and he needs to make it home in time. And he's about to go on. But then Richard Belzer bumps him. He's pissed and he's like, this is going to be my last show here. I'm going to give them the show of their life. <laughs> and then I'm fucking quitting. And it's like all this buildup to then what eventually he goes out on stage and just gets blown to pieces. Oh, so sad. <laughs> but uh, people should go check that out. It's on YouTube. It's called Octavio's Last Stand. Uh, Matt Mazzani and Skalski, they have a, a, a group called Cascade Up that they did a cool video of that a few years ago. Apparently, the MPAA was really critical on how many times Octavio gets shot. Mm-hmm. They were like, you can't have the clown get shot that many times. And De Palma was like, you're concerned <laughs> with how many bullets are going into That's the clown? That's where they draw the line. Yeah. Um, and then this leads to to uh, Tony. He survives. He's pretty sure that it's Frank. And so Tony goes to Frank, all wounded. And Frank is now hanging out with Mel, Mel. the cop, played by Harris Yearlin, mm-hmm. who I know from Ghostbusters too. He's mm. the judge in Ghostbusters. The Scolari brothers. <laughs> um, and he's good in the movie. He's like got a, He's got that piece of shit cop mentality. He's just sitting there with his arms folded. Yeah, playing it cool. Playing it yeah. so cool. He's like, eh, no big deal. Yeah, because yeah. well, it's a different thing to kill a cop. Exactly. Yeah. He's like, well, Mel, we're not cool, actually. Like, mm-hmm. you're a piece of shit, and I don't, I essentially, I just don't like your ass. Mm-hmm. And he shoots him in the belly, and he literally is like, you can't fucking shoot a <laughs> <Yeah>. cop. <laughs> and then he falls backwards with his foot yes. still on the table. It's just great. There's two... Uh, that I think of two save the cat moments in this movie. And this is one of save them. the Ernie, save the Ernie. <laughs> I think that's what the book was originally called yeah. was save the Ernie. Yeah. He, he, he kills Frank, he kills Mel. And then the only person left is Frank's bodyguard, Ernie. Um, they say, what about Ernie? And he goes, you want a job, Ernie? Mm-hmm. 
his perf- his reaction is so great. You know, he's like hey, Tony, about to cry. Thanks. Yeah, he's like he's like sh- shaking yeah. at the end. Like, oh man. So, and again, and it's everyone's these, seller chichi's like, you got a you job. got a job, yeah. man. Yeah, it's these moments like this that get you. This movie does a really good job of never pulling its punches with how terrible of a person Tony is, but keeping you invested. It really makes you as an audience go like, why do I want this guy to win? Mm -hmm. He's a piece of shit, but it's because of moments like this. It's because you get enough moments and he has another one towards the end of the movie where he won't kill the kids too. Mm -hmm. He has like a moral code. Yeah, I wouldn't say there's a lot. No, but enough. We'll hear what Corey has to say about this movie, but I've watched plenty of movies with Corey where the protagonist of the film is so revolting that she doesn't ultimately doesn't like watching the movie because she's like, fuck this person. I don't know exactly how. We didn't talk after we watched the movie. We'll see how she's walking on the razor's edge of revolting. Exactly. I mean, that's what the song's all about. (laughs) Um, And then he looks out the window and he sees the blimp that says the world is yours. Yeah. And this is when... This is like a new act, a new chapter. This is when the first tape ended Mm -hmm. on the double tape. Mm, That's a perfect It's a perfect ending. It fades to black. That becomes his motto, Mm -hmm. basically. Yeah, he builds a sculpture. That that says says the the world world is yours. yours. Can you imagine if he looked out the window and he saw like McDonald's? (laughs) 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 I'm loving it. (laughs) I'm loving it. I'm loving it on everything. Or he sees like O'Reilly Auto Parts. Mm -hmm. Oh, oh. (laughs) (laughs) Um. So then we get this great montage that is set to push it to the limit. Oh man. It's fantastic. It's fun. You're you're he's he has everything. He, that that blimp flies by and says the world is yours and it literally is. He's killed the man who's on top. Wait, so tape 2 begins with push it to the it limit. It begins with push it to the limit. It begins with that shot of money going through the mm-hmm. fucking money counter. Mm-hmm. And in this sequence you see that he's making bag loads of money so much so that the bankers are like what the fuck Mm -hmm. you see that he's bought gina uh, a hair salon he gets married to michelle pfeiffer Mm -hmm. he buys a tiger and he buys a tiger and he you know they've set up that Mm -hmm. he mentions when they take elvira to the car dealership he says we've been driving around the zoos all day we're looking at tigers man and then when he talks to, to elvira at the pool he says you're my tiger i knew the second i saw you i wanted you and so now he's getting married to her. He has his tiger in Michelle Pfeiffer. And then he also has a literal tiger, which I got to say, I felt bad for that tiger. Oh, totally. It's wrapped up in the chain. It doesn't look like it's having fun. No. I wonder if that was uh, supplied by Tiger King. Oh, then. I guess it could have. And the, the last thing you get in this montage, though, is cameras. You start to see that Tony Montana has cameras all over the place. He's got this massive surveillance going on, which ultimately is representative of his extreme paranoia that he now that he's yeah. on top which is a common common thing for drug dealers to do I right guess. and it's a common thing for De Palma De Palma loves voyeurism and surveillance and screens within screens and cameras within cameras mm-hmm. and so like usually when he does it it's about somebody spying on somebody but in this case it's about this our main characters, mm-hmm. you know, riddled with paranoia that somebody yeah. he, now that he's at the top, somebody's yeah, going to take Yeah, which is our, our, our first sign that something is 
is not good. Um, Trouble in Paradise. Exactly. And that one of my favorite shots in the movie is the slow zoom in on Michelle Pfeiffer at the end of the montage when like push yeah. it to the limit. Just and she's starts, not happy. Does that thing with the music that you like where it starts mm-hmm. to get dark and it pushes in on her and she snorts cocaine. She takes a drag of her cigarette and she takes a drink and you know yeah. she's in prison. Yeah. We're about to enter the uh, all is lost stage of the film. We get a little bit of stuff about how he's laundering money and the, his his CPA is basically like, hey, you know, you're bringing in a lot of money. It's going to get harder. I'm going to have to I think to that's just your- the banker. That's like his bank uh, oh, executive banker. I assumed it was like his tax guy. <laughs> <laughs> and I related to it. I was like, I relate to Tony here. No, I hate th- it when our tax that guy was, tells us we can't bring in yeah, more money. No, that was in Cocaine Cowboys was uh, all of the banks that were complicit in the drug trade he's taking and funneling pay- money he's, and he's putting it in. Payoff, yeah. mm-hmm, they, they started to do something unprecedented at the time, which was convert money for people and basically they were they were charging 10 percent or something like that uh in order to help help these drug dealers hide their money and tony actually says um i go low you go high do you think that's where michelle obama got it what she was a big scarface (laughs) fan very vocal obama put it as his end of the year list of 1983 Mm -hmm. best best stuff along with flashdance too Mm -hmm. big flashdance scarface his favorite score all time. Mm-hmm. It was part of his campaign tour. The the uh, the main, world is yours. The world is yours. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So then there's this tub sequence, which is an iconic mm-hmm. scene. Um. This immaculate set. All these sets were built on the Universal lot. He's got this huge tub filled with bubbles. There's carpet all around it, which is kind of risky. But I love the size of this tub. I personally can't fit into most tubs, so I because I'm so tall, I'm six foot four. Mm-hmm. When I take a bath, I'm either half in or half out in some part of my body. So if I want to get my legs and butt and penis wet, I have to keep my whole upper body out of the tub. And if I need to do that, I essentially have to get into like a birthing position in which my legs are completely out of the tub, like on the wall in order to like get my stomach and chest soaked. So I'm not a big bath Such taker. a disturbing visual. <laughs> Sorry. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I have to go through. So if I had a tub like this, I'd be bathing all the time. But until then, I got to be stanky. Yeah, this is like you were saying, they get into a huge fight. Um, Can't you stop saying fuck all the time? Mm -hmm. You get a little bit on the TV, too, about Miami's changing, you know? There's more media attention on the the cocaine war. Mm Mm-hmm. That Tony's right in the thick of. Well, and so the next scene, Manny, basically Manny set up this, what we see in the next scene, Tony Montana goes to and ends up getting busted. But it was originally, it could have been Manny, but because Tony is so paranoid, he doesn't let Manny go. And he was like, I'll take care of it. I'll handle it. Yeah. And And Manny's pissed about it. Manny's like, man, I found this thing. So yeah, he gets busted. In order to sort of like dig his way out of it, he then meets with Sosa and a couple of other high-end drug dealers mm-hmm. who are basically like, our shit is getting exposed by the media. And there's this one particular guy exposing everybody, all the drug dealers. And we need you, Tony Montana, to go with uh, our boy Shadow and prevent this guy from going out and talking to more people. And if you do that, we can like get you out of this um, 
this mess you're in. Also, Greg Henry is in that scene, who's who was in Body Double That's right. and a lot of other blonde, De Palma stuff. Blonde guy, yeah. It's like unclear who he is or what he's supposed to be doing. But yeah, I don't know. Maybe represents American. Maybe he's a lawyer or something. Or something. Yeah. Did you notice in the scene the projector that they're watching is like a? It's um. It's got like three. They project the video onto the wall and they get a close up of the projector and it's like three red, green, and blue lights. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd never seen that before. I looked it up. It's called a CRT projector. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know if they really make them anymore, but they were back then, they were the highest quality projector you had. And it's literally projecting three images at one time one completely passing through the green, one through the blue, one through the red. I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Projector versus nice TV. Do you have a preference? My dream is a projector. Right now, I prefer TV just because it's, I think, the best image. An OLED TV, I think, is like the best image quality you can get right now. A projector is an amazing experience. The colors and the quality don't quite work for me. But but I love being able to hide the projector during the day. So you have a nice, beautiful living room space. The projector's up. You want to watch a movie at night. You pull down the curtains. You pull down the screen. Right. And there's your there's your little TV setup. Uh, I just think it's not really affordable. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I I'm, I have to say I didn't, I've never been sold on the projector setup. Mm-hmm. I've seen people do it, and I never really like it. Now they probably don't. They probably it, haven't investigated it enough and put in the they're not using the right equipment to do it right Mm -hmm. but to me i would 100 percent of the time prefer just a nice tv over it takes time to turn on the bulbs everything's got to warm up yeah outside of a movie theater i've just never seen a projector Mm -hmm. give me what appears to be accurate colors or contrast Mm -hmm. and um you know a lot of time it's it's People project it onto their walls well, and curtains, yeah, you, and it's like, God, no, don't do no, that, guys. Not, you're you're adding all this shit. Into I the think image. you can do it in a way that would be impressive for you, but you're dropping a minimum of five thousand dollars. Yeah, to me, nothing beats a good old flat screen TV. Mm-hmm. The projector is nice because it's it's future. It's almost future proof, meaning if you want, instead of upgrading your TV from you know, 40 inch to 55 mm-hmm. or 65, you just zoom in and out on the projector or right. you move it forwards or backwards and you right. get unlimited screen sizes. So then we get this dinner scene. Tony is just in a foul ass mood and he starts picking on both Manny and Elvira. And Elvira basically has a flip out. Like is, is she's had it. He starts talking about the fact that she can't have children because of all the coke that she's done. And that essentially sends her over the edge. She throws wine on him, stands up and makes a big public like, fuck you, Tony, I'm leaving you. I have Nick the pig as a friend. Yeah. Which he seems like a good guy yeah, to me. I like him. I like Nick. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then she leaves and Tony then has this great mm-hmm. kind of soliloquy mm-hmm. as he stands up and leaves where he says like, I'm the bad guy, but you need people like me to point your fingers at and say goodnight to the bad guy. It's the last time you see a bad guy that looks like me. And everybody is good in the scene, and it's it's an um, iconic moment. And apparently, uh, in this book, uh, Double De Palma, Brian De Palma talks about how he's he's talking about working with Al Pacino and how when you work with an actor like Al Pacino who is so invested in their character, you sometimes have to do what they want to do because they uh, will fight for it. And he said when they were shooting this scene, De Palma wanted the scene to be over right after Michelle Pfeiffer left. Because in his mind, he was like, that's what the point of the scene is. It's her breaking up with him. 
And so he wanted it to just be that one last like, oh, she'll have another quaalude, then she'll be back. He wanted that to be the last line of the scene. But Pacino was like, no way. Like, you got to keep the cameras rolling. I got to react to this. And he was like, but Al, this movie's going to be like four and a half hours long. Like, we can't do this for every fucking scene. And Pacino was dead set. Keep it going. Do not cut. We're not going to, the scene's not over. This is a crucial scene for Tony. And De Palma didn't want to do it, but he finally relented. And he's like, thank God I did. Because yeah, this moment is important. Pacino was right. Which makes me assume that this is kind of like an improv scene. It sounds like it wasn't necessarily a part of the script. Or if it was a part of the script, De Palma just wanted to cut it. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, he was like, he was right. And that's what, uh, you know, as a director, when you work with actors like Al Pacino, you have to be willing to go with them to places that maybe you don't think you want to go. Yeah, and this project probably wouldn't have even existed without Pacino. So yeah. there's that. And I, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't want to give Pacino the credit for writing the scene, though. I bet that was Stone. It could have been Stone. He, he, uh, he talks about in the De Palma documentary that he went way over over budget and they went way over schedule on this movie mm-hmm. so i'm sure de palma was trying to cut anywhere he could and you know al was just like living as tony mm-hmm. you know? and i think that that scene to me encapsulates uh one of the themes of the movies too which is like yes tony montana is vile and he's the villain but he also is like a a, a coke mirror to society and it's like are you really uh the bankers who are involved in this you know the are are the the businesses capitalistic society the corruption the police like are they really so different right uh let's take a quick break and we will come right back And we're back to Cinema Possessed. So Tony is having a complete downfall at this point. And he kills his best friend. Really his only friend, yeah. Manny. The only person who's like been there the whole time. Mm-hmm. He kills him. Essentially takes his sister hostage. And um, begins doing a massive amount of cocaine. <laughs> like way more cocaine than he is than we've seen him do it at any point of the movie. I saw a funny interview with De Palma where he was like, some people are pointing out that that's an unrealistic amount of cocaine. He was like, bullshit. He was like, I've seen cocaine that big in rooms before. He was like, this is nothing weird to me. Then we see that his home is getting invaded. Now, this is because he's supposed to go kill this journalist. Mm -hmm. He doesn't kill him because his kids are in the car. He ends up actually killing Sosa's Mm -hmm. right-hand guy Mm -hmm. and bails on the whole thing. Yeah, And so Sosa is basically sent his men to go kill Tony. You this always me. happens. You Tony fucked fuck somebody and mm-hmm. they send guys to kill him and eventually your time's going to run out, Tony. So um, as the, his, his, his property is getting a bit, but, which by the way, his house is crazy. Mm-hmm. A huge set. Mm-hmm. As this is happening, Gina comes in. This is a pretty spooky scene, actually. Mm-hmm. She's ethereal. almost in like a trance. Mm-hmm. She's got a gun. She's half naked in this flowy robe. And she's walking towards Tony saying, this is what you want, right? You want to fuck me, Tony? And he's like sitting behind his desk, I think thinking like, is this a Coke dream? Like, what the fuck am I looking at? Because he's not really like concerned. He's sort of confused Mm -hmm. at what she's doing. Meanwhile, a guy is coming in through the balcony and in an attempt to kill Tony, ends up shooting Gina, which alerts him that his place is being 
invaded. Yeah. It's a sad moment. He holds his sister as she dies. And then we proceed to have this big, huge, grandiose shootout with like tons of guys, tons of guns. This is an interesting sequence from a production standpoint because apparently um, Al Pacino fired his gun for a take and then at some point grabbed the barrel of the gun and the barrel was so hot that it burned his hand very badly. And Mm -hmm. so he had to take like a week off of shooting to let his hand heal. And De Palma says they basically had a full week to just get every possible angle of somebody firing a gun that you could imagine. So much so that even Spielberg came and spent a day on the set just helping them find places to to film people shooting guns. What a dream to be able to like visit your friend's movie set and yeah. your friend is like, yeah, just pick up a camera. Yeah, get, let's just, we're, we're just all we're doing today is mm-hmm. squibs and mm-hmm. and gunfire. Mm-hmm. And they had a cool. He, they talked about how they had a cool um, like synchronizing mechanism to capture all the muzzle flashes with it was synchronized to the camera shutter Mm -hmm. so that anytime the muzzle flashes happened the shutter was always open to capture. which which looks awesome but i heard pissed off pacino right because they said he would pull the trigger and nothing would happen for like a second he was getting frustrated by it that's a moment when you tell the actor to shut up yeah you just deal with it yeah um and it, the movie starts to become surreal because he gets shot probably like 30 times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's and like cocaine running through his blood. Exactly. He's just going, give me more. I could take it. I could fucking take it. You can't get me. And it does feel like for a moment that he's like invincible. But then old skull, Mr. Sunglasses, comes up behind him and uh, double barrel shotguns him into the back into the mm-hmm. fountain below. With fake slow motion. I don't know how they even do this. It's cool because he, when he gets shot, he falls into the fountain and the water in the fountain is like perfectly turquoise. And then he hits and almost immediately this like geyser of red water, red blood comes flying up. And I'm like, how did they even do that? Because I don't even know how blood could penetrate water so fast to, to like right when he hits it, this massive amount of blood comes out. But it looks fucking amazing. Mm-hmm. And then we hold on that dead body floating into in the mm-hmm. fountain as the camera slowly pulls out yeah and the, the rotor stuntman music has comes. to hold their breath the whole time uh-huh and we just pull back to see all the carnage as mm-hmm. um the sunglasses mm-hmm. man yeah. goes walking down the stairs very casually and we just see the world is yours on the it. world is it's yours like and very... the credit comes up that says uh this film is dedicated mm-hmm. to howard hawks and ben hecht and the movie ends and there, there is a credit at the very end of the movie. I don't know if you sat through the credits. Words that read, Scarface is a fictional account of the activities of a small group of ruthless criminals. The characters do not represent the Cuban-American community, and it would be erroneous and unfair to suggest that they do. The vast majority of Cuban-Americans have demonstrated a dedication, vitality, and enterprise that has enriched the American scene. Put that shit at the top. That's probably true. I haven't read the book, but I want to give a shout out to uh, a novel written by L.A. Banks. Uh, It's a prequel to Scarface, and it's fully licensed. It's called Point of No Return. And they gave her carte blanche to write his origin story, and she writes how he gets the scar in the book. It's not eating... It's not by eating pussy? It's not eating pussy. It's not eating pineapple. Speaking of... There's a remake about to be made soon, directed by Luca Guadagnino, Mm. written by the Coen brothers. Mm. To me, that's a dream. It's a remake? Yeah. Who Do we know who's playing Tony Montana? No, hasn't been. That sounds like fake. It does sound fake, but but, but Luca has given hints that it's real. 
And I'm, I'll be honest, the last thing I want is a remake of Scarface, but if anybody's going to do it, I want it to be Luca Guadagnino. It sounds, it sounds like a winning combo. Because he'll do it differently. I guarantee you he will not try to emulate this movie at all. Mm-hmm. He will find a new approach to it that is probably going to be legitimately unique. And yeah, the Coen brothers writing the script, like, I, I got to see this movie. This is the most exciting version of a remake. The last thing I want is for, like, fucking Zack Snyder to do the remake. No, yeah, that, I wonder if they'll ditch the Cuban aspect. I think they will. Yeah. I think they will. So now that we have talked about Scarface as people who have seen it a million times and already have a relationship to it, let's hear what somebody who maybe doesn't have that relationship to it thinks about the movie. So let's bring in the one, the only... Corey Clifford. You've seen Scarface before, correct? Yes. Have you only seen it when I've watched it or had you seen it before you knew me? Well, did this play on TV? Yeah. Scarface was a big TV movie. I feel like, yeah, I saw, you know, I knew the say hello to my little friend, Mm -hmm. like that line. Oh, yeah. We didn't even talk about that line. Yeah. I was really hoping to introduce you to the podcast by by saying, say hello to my little friend, Jack Bishop. Just say it right now. Say hello to my little friend, Jack Bishop. (laughs) Co-host of the podcast. It feels so... It um, sounds bad. problematic. It sounds bad. <laughs> I, I regret I said it. that it I was. I prefaced it. We're yeah. doing Pacino, guys. I know. Okay, it still okay. feels wrong. Everyone, I want to apologize. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if anybody, we understand and we're sorry. Um. Yeah. So I think I, you know, I have memories of it. And then we watched it during quarantine, maybe? No. No? Oh, okay. Well, we watched it at some point. And how did it hold up? What did, what, did, what was your feeling? Um, well, I thought it was interesting that you mentioned earlier that you've shown me a lot of movies where the characters are deplorable and it has made me not like the movie. Raging Bull. Um, so I was kind of like, hmm, what am I going to feel about this? But I got to say, I loved Scarface. And I think I can get behind an evil character like Tony Montoya because he's- Tana. Tana, Tony Montana. I can get behind a character like Tony Montana because he gets what's coming to him. And I like that. He's arguably more charming than somebody like well, Jake LaMotta. Yes, right? he's more charming, but he's also like other people are calling him out for being evil. And the movie doesn't necessarily portray him as a character that we're necessarily supposed to be behind. Like, yes, we're like on his journey, but I don't, I don't know. I feel like it doesn't, we're not forced to root for him in the same way like i'm happy to watch his ass get blown the fuck up you really you really think he's charming would you describe him as charming i don't know if i would say he is charming like oh i have a crush on him because manny was played that role for sure i think he's um but let corey speak (laughs) thank you justin um but there is something about the character that I want to see what he's going to do next. Mm-hmm. Um, part of that is because the first part of the movie, he doesn't really become deplorable to me until we start seeing him interact with women. It's like, I can kind of like, Ooh, this is like, he's a bad guy, like right. kind of fun. And then once the women start being introduced, it's like, Oh, he fucking sucks. Well, but, and he, he has a sense of humor too. Like in the moment yeah. when Manny says, I, I got this thing that's going to attract the women and he does the tongue thing. Al Pacino does this funny, like, get that fucking thing out of here. It's gross. Like a bug. And he tells the little kid, hey, watch this guy. He's yeah. Gonna... These are moments that are like, 
Jake LaMotta doesn't have that in Raging Bull. Like Raging Bull, he is kind of just a piece of shit. Ugh, He's there's not him. a lot of likable qualities about him. You're yeah. giving him so much credit though. Yes, he's not sticking his tongue out, but he is still saying you get the power, you get the money, of you course, get the girl. Justin, we're human beings. You can be a bad person and yeah, still not have charisma. I'm yeah, he's just I not- think that's a better way to describe it is that he's not charming as in a way of like I'm like, "Ooh, I want to go on a date with him," but he has charisma. Like he has like especially the first half of the movie are like, wow, like truly I wrote this down. I was like, (laughs) his character is the embodiment of manifesting. He, if you believe it, you can make it happen. Quit your shitty job, bet on yourself. Like he is like the story of like manifesting is really big right now. And it's like you journal about Mm -hmm. like journal about the life that you want to have as if you already have it. And that is like completely what he's doing in a way that is super like, empowering kind of where I was like fuck yeah like my dream is to quit my fucking bartending job and just walk out he's an underdog yeah and so you you naturally kind of want to root for him because he's an underdog right so best friend aka Manny is a babe like wow like he is a babe and I really also agree with you Justin that I wish that tongue scene wasn't in it because if that scene wasn't in it I could be a hundred percent in love with them, but that really hurt. But that you actor, could forgive the murders. But I can forgive the murder. I can't. The, yes. <laughs> it's true, yeah. honestly, yes, true. I feel like the you guys did not talk as much about the fashion as I thought you would have. The fashion of this movie is incredible. incredible. Everybody looks amazing. Patricia Norris did the costumes, by the way. Okay, Patricia Norris is insanely amazing. Every outfit every man was wearing was was incredible. Every outfit Michelle Pfeiffer's wearing, every outfit the sister's wearing. The white outfit she comes out in, that Michelle Pfeiffer comes out in with the white hat and the white suit and the sunglasses when they go buy a new car. Dream Halloween costume. Any costume she's wearing is I want to own it not even just for Halloween just for life apparently those sunglasses were only three dollars Michelle Pfeiffer stole them from the set and they broke all the time I also wrote down that Michelle Pfeiffer's haircut is the haircut that you see that makes you think as a woman like I could pull off bangs I can do it Mm. no you can't Michelle Pfeiffer looks like Michelle Pfeiffer and that's why she can pull off that haircut if I had it I would look like the guy from Shrek cream (laughs) yeah moppish bob yeah like no i found it funny that f murray abrams has gotten way more attractive with age yeah he's kind of rugged looking not a babe in the movie but he plays the grandpa on white lotus season two yeah he's and i find him very like attractive it looks like you're doing the tongue thing okay you look like a bug (laughs) um love men in jewelry all the jewelry in this movie, the gold chains. Corey's been trying to get me to do gold chains. I really oh. want Jack to wear a gold chain. I don't a think thin I'm. Good. One? I don't think I look good with them. You, no. but you do. She really does think so, and I'm like, I guess I should because my wife likes yeah, it. Yeah, if I think it's attractive, but I'm like, I just feel like such a tryhard when I wear it. One, but if you just start wearing it, you would feel that way with anything. If you just start wearing it, then it just becomes a part it's of true. your personality. I feel that way when I wear shorts at summertime. When I'm like transitioning from pants to shorts, I'm like, I feel like such a tryhard. You're wearing a button up like Cuban style shirt right now. Well, we're recording the Scarface. Yeah, but you own this shirt. And I love it. Just promise you'll never wear a fedora. Never. I would never let him wear a fedora. A gold chain is cool. Maybe when the new Indiana Jones comes out. Oh, God. I'll wear it to the theater. Justin, you could pull off a gold chain major. I'd be down. 
Okay, so with the I, beard. I would want the gold chain to have a story, though. Like, I inherited it from my grandmother, sure, you know? Sure, sure. Not that, that I went things. to, like, Zara. Zara. Well, no, no. It has to be a real gold chain. Yeah. You uh, Guys cannot wear fake gold chains. Mm. I don't know. That's probably sexist, but that's how I feel. I only wear pewter. Pewter? Pewter? Pewter, yeah. It's like, isn't it like a cheap metal? Oh, yeah. Oh, maybe. Um, though the scene is horrifying, I'm really going on everybody's looks, which... Sorry, but I am. Uh, I, though the scene is horrifying when Al Pacino comes to be like, Michelle Pfeiffer, you're coming with me now, baby. Frank's dead. She's never looked more beautiful ever. Like when she like wakes up from bed, I'm like, this is the fantasy of what you look like. Bed too low bed. on the ground, though. I'm glad you brought that up. The bit, did you notice that? It's as if she's sleeping on a mattress on the floor, but if it was like really nice sheets. Mm. Raise your bed, girl. It's nice. I feel like low beds are like kind of in though they and maybe they were back then yeah really made me want a cubano have you ever been influenced by like a blimp or a, a sign that made you change your whole life what vision board what are, what are you referencing only blimpy the sandwiches the blimpy, the sandwich are so shop. good the blimp that says the world is yours and then he's like that becomes like his motto oh no <laughs> no i haven't um <laughs> You know the oh, I thought something funny for you to know, Justin, is that Jack was truly dancing as if nobody was watching throughout the whole movie. Like I, w I should have gotten videos of it, like fist pumping, like in an almost distracting way. But I was like, let him enjoy this. Don't I, make I did it too. Uh, not the whole movie, but I was. I mean, pretty much the whole movie. I was prancing around. The soundtrack is fucking great. Mm -hmm. Um, I love his sister. So sad. It felt like Romeo and Juliet. Her and Manny's story. The whole movie felt very Shakespearean to me. Actually, yeah, feels like a Shakespearean tragedy it's a real it's like a parable you know and it's very it's very operatic and that kind of makes it feel dante's yeah. inferno mm. dante's uh, peak mm -hmm. justin you mentioned it would be cool to have a scarface <laughs> uh bowling shirt uh-huh and i just showed jack um mm. this is kind of embarrassing but this reality star that i follow on instagram named lala kent from vanderpump rules mm -hmm. posted a picture on instagram yesterday and it was her in the sickest scarface bowling shirt i've ever seen it was one half of the shirt is al pacino and the other half is michelle pfeiffer and they're like looking at each other mm. and it is a bowling shirt and it was really cool that sounds cool it was would you go, would you go uh for halloween double uh costume date uh with as Scarface 100%. Which one which version of Scarface would you choose? Probably the most recognizable, so I would probably want to go like white. I would want to go cover the box kind of deal. And oh, I'll, I'll no, who cares? I would go blue suit mm -hmm. with the cast on the arm, mm -hmm. the blood on the shoulder, mm -hmm. and I literally wrote dream Halloween costume. Yes, I would love to do should any be, outfit Michelle Fiverr's wearing. Should I be Chi Chi or Manny? Mm, that's a good question because Chi-Chi has a better Chi-Chi has a fedora. He does. Chi-Chi looks like who? Who did I say he looks like? Uh, Clifton Collins Jr. Yes. Yep. Yes, he does. Definitely. Um. So you guys were also talking about this potential remake. Apparently, the script is already written. Yeah. It's a, uh, It's not a rumor. It's a real. It has deal. been, and it was supposed to get made with the director of Training Day, Antoine Fuqua. Yeah, a, a while ago, that was like the first one with the Coen Brothers, and he wanted Denzel Washington to be interesting. Um, Tony Montoya, but Tana. Tana, sorry, Tony. He wanted him to be Tony Montana. <laughs> um, is Tony Montoya a football player? Joe Montana is the football player, That's and Tony mean. Montoya is the character in Scarface. Tony Montana. Montana. What is Montoya? Doesn't matter. Um, but 
Luca Guadagnino is I'm obsessed with him. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it is still saying that oh, as of you, 2021, you, he's supposed to be in it. You're reminding me of uh, the Princess Bride uh, in Diego Montoya. Maybe that's who you're. Yeah, my name is Diego Montoya. What, oh, maybe that yeah. is what I'm thinking. Mandy Patinkin. Actually, Mandy Patinkin. Um, but also Diego Luna was attached to be cool, like in 2018, and then he is no longer attached to it anymore. Like it's that is fallen out. But that would have been really cool. Diego Luna would have been awesome. Mm, that's what those are my thoughts on Scarface. So you had a good time. I had a great time. I had a good time too. I always have a good. Oh, how about the length? Too long, or did it kind of? Does it? To me, it cruises. I feel like it earns its length. It earns its length because the story is so epic. Yeah, the story is epic. I don't love an almost three-hour movie most times, but it 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 it, it earned its almost three hours in length. I think me. this is one of the movies that actually like got me accustomed to a three-hour movie. It's a movie that I wanted to rewatch a lot as a kid. It it made me be okay with three hour movies in a way that I think most people aren't. I feel like Titanic was the movie that I was proud of that yeah. I could easily watch for three hours. Coming back to theaters, I know in three D. It's back. Yeah, it was there. We we went to the theater last night and it was there. I really want to go see it. Three D Titanic. I can't even imagine. Well, now that we've heard from Corey, Justin, final thoughts. How do you feel about this movie, and what are you going to do with this Blu Ray you have? Are you going to keep it? Are you going to trash it? Are you going to upgrade it? I love the movie. I'm going to keep it. There is a 4K version of this movie, 35th anniversary edition. Are we in that 35th? No, this we're in 2003. We must be in the 40th an- anniversary of this film. Wow. It was in 1983. Mm-hmm. Wow. So maybe there's going to be a, maybe there's going to be a 40th thing coming mm-hmm. pretty soon. But yeah. what you're talking about is a 35th. Yeah, it's uh 5 years old. I don't remember if the 4K is in honor of that, but Either way, it's right. a 4K UHD version. I looked at the bonus features. It doesn't really add anything new. There's one interview at the Tribeca Film Festival that you could find online on YouTube. I watched it. It's it's. Is that the one where the interviewer asked Michelle an, Pfeiffer what her weight was? Yeah. And people boo. He horrifying. pissed me off so much. Yeah. People fucking boo. And as they should. And she handles it really nicely to him. But mm-hmm. yeah, what a fucking. All of his question. questions were dumb. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I thought the Blu-ray looked amazing. I'm going to keep it. There's no reason to upgrade yeah. other than that stupid cover. Right. Well, I agree. I love this movie. It holds a place in my heart. Uh, a very nostalgic place. It's a feel-good movie to me. This movie certainly has its issues as we've touched upon. It would never be made the same way today. And it shouldn't be. But this movie's a relic, I think. It's a real snapshot of a very specific time and place. I think... Uh, we would be remiss not to have it just as a, a, a portrait of what 1980s Miami was like. It's got everything I want in a movie. It's undeniably iconic. I enjoy the hell of it. And I, I, I wish I could wear a Scarface shirt uh, and not be judged as a piece of shit. Um, as far as my DVD goes, like you said, I mean, this thing is special. Now, the DVD is old. It did fill the the TV properly. I didn't have to do any monkeying around with the aspect ratio. So it's a new enough DVD to be able to handle that. But the quality of the video is not perfect. Didn't affect our viewing experience at all. But I don't know. I don't I don't know if I can get rid of this the suitcase. It's too amazing. So here's what I'm gonna say. I'm 100 percent going to upgrade to a Blu-ray. But I think I want to keep this in my collection. However, I'm gonna leave it up to the Patreon subscribers. If there's demand 
I just might put this up, but only if there's demand. So if you want this thing and you're not a Patreon subscriber, get to subscribing. We will make a post about it. Leave a comment. And if and if there's enough out there, really, if there's only one or two of y'all, I'm sorry, you're not going to get it. But if there's a bunch of y'all, then you know what? I'm willing to give back because that's the kind of guy I am. Wow. That's very, very generous of you. Well, now that we've said all there is to say about (laughs) Scarface, what do you say we play? Where'd you get the beauty scar, tough guy? That's right, folks. It's time to play Whose Scar Is It Anyways? Fuck you. I thought it was going to be like, whose pussy is it anyway? (laughs) The object of the game. I will describe you a character and their scar, and you have to tell me who that character is and what movie they're from. Is this multiple choice? No. Each question is worth two points. You get a point for the movie, and you get a point for the name of the character. Here's an example. This white powder-loving gangster may have been sliced from brow to cheek while performing cunnilingus. Al Pacino. Tony Montana. Oh. Scarface. That's so... So, so Justin I have to say the character the, name. You have to say the movie and the character name. Oh, Justin's that's 100% no, going to no. win. The, the character name? That's hard. Yeah. Act, actor name. Right. Question number one. This kooky criminal has conflicting accounts for the crooked carvings surrounding their mouth. Justin. Corey. I'll give it to Corey. <laughs> Joker. The Dark Knight. Okay. Two points for Corey. Good job. All right. Two to zero. Corey's lead. Question number two. This southern soldier uses scars to strike fear, but the one on his neck goes from ear to ear. Yeah, read it one more time. This southern soldier uses scars to strike fear, but the one on his neck goes from ear to ear. Tough one. I have a clue. A southern soldier that uses scars to strike fear. Oh. Justin. Okay. Inglorious Bastards. Okay. And the character is Lieutenant Aldo Rain. Right, we got a tie game, two to two. Is that Brad Pitt? That's Brad Pitt. He has a giant scar across his neck. Question number three. This fine-fingered freak sports a dreamy face, but it's covered with nicks all over the place. Do it again. This fine-fingered freak sports a dreamy face, but it's covered with nicks all over the place. Oh, Corey, 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 Corey. Edward and Edward Scissorhands. Okay. Two points more for Corey, so it's four to two. Fine-fingered. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. You guys are doing good. (laughs) Give me my clues. This aquatic angler has a mark on their arm from a tattoo removed that reminds them of harm. This aquatic angler has a mark on their arm from a tattoo removed that reminds them of harm. 
Justin. Okay. I don't know. Um, Steve Zizu, The Life Aquatic. No way. <laughs> That's what I was thinking, though. That is what I was thinking, too. I was thinking it had to be Life Aquatic. But you're, you're on to something there. You're on to something. When you're saying aquatic, are you meaning aquatic? And you're saying aquatic because <laughs> yeah. it rhymes? Yeah, aquatic. Okay. <laughs> Doesn't rhyme. <laughs> it's like really this aquatic. This aquatic angler. So you you have found a character that is very similar to the one I'm speaking of. And their methods, the, what they're doing is very similar as well. But it's a, I'll give you a hint, it's a much more classic film. When I say angler, what am I talking about? Can I start by guessing the movie first? Of course. Justin. Okay. Jaws. Okay! So that's a point. So now Justin has three points. He could get four if he can guess the name of the character. And Corey, if you have a guess, I know who it is, but I do yeah. not know the character. Yeah, name. the name is tough. Mm. All right, it's right on the tip of my tongue. <laughs> I'm going to give you five seconds. Five, four, three, two, one. No way. <laughs> the character's name is Quint. Oh God, Quint. damn it! I know it hurts. Yeah. All right, so Justin is only behind by one point. Corey has four. Justin has three. Wow. Question number five. This fatherless fighter has vengeance to seek with a sword in his hand and a slash on each cheek. Corey! Uh-huh. The Princess Bride. Okay! <laughs> just said the name, Justin. My name is... Okay, so Corey has five wait, 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 points. Justin. I get, I get at least wait. five seconds. Uh, Corey gets ten seconds. Montoya. My ten. name is something Montoya and you kill my father. Seven, ah, I can't six, think of something Montoya. Five. Ugh, I can't Two. remember. You just said it. All right, Justin. In Diego Montoya. Okay. Okay, so this is a tie game. Wow. So here's what I have. I do have a tiebreaker. Okay. Now, if nobody can get this one, it's just going to have to be a tie. Because it's so hard. This is a hard one. And you made sure I've seen both the movies. I don't know about this one, honestly. That's rude. I do think you've seen it. Tiebreaker. This supernatural special agent just might be insane, but beneath his white dress shirt hides a roadmap of pain. Justin. The Frighteners. Okay! I will allow the actor's name on this one. Jeffrey Combs. Okay! Justin wins. <laughs> <laughs> Whose scar is it anyway? I'm the best. <laughs> Fuck you. I'm better, you cockroaches. Justin, did you want me to play Elvira's theme for? for okay, yeah. So I, I want. Um, it's not a game. It's just a moment for all of us, our <laughs> listeners, to yeah. connect with the loved ones around them. I want you to play Gina and Elvira's theme. And if you're listening to this podcast. First of all, if you're still listening, congratulations. <laughs> um, but if you're listening next to someone you love, I want you to look into their eyes while you're listening to this and just feel your love for them. And if you're not next to anybody, just close your eyes and think of someone you love the most. Aww. There we go.
that, my friends, is our show. Follow us on social media at Cinema Possessed Pod, where we announce next week's movie ahead of time. And hey, if you want to get in touch with us, email us at cinemapossessedpod at gmail.com. And if you want to get even more possessed, head on over to patreon.com slash cinemapossessedpod and unlock the Cinema Possessed bonus materials, our bi-monthly bonus episodes where we talk about more than just what's in our collection. Plus, you'll gain exclusive access to Patreon-only giveaways and community message boards. And hey, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get these podcasts. Jack, tell them what we're watching next week. We are watching Billy Bob Thornton's Sling Blade. Sling Blade! (laughs) And as always, keep watching the movies you love and stay possessed. Later. Bye-bye to the bad guy. (laughs) Say goodnight to the bad guy. Say goodnight to the bad podcast. I'm sorry you guys all had to hear that. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.